Hey everybody and welcome to the second episode of Here For It. I am your host Paige and today I am so excited about this episode because it is going to be surrounded by the topic of homelessness and I really am um, really passionate about this population. I think that it's something that is really misunderstood so I'm excited for you guys to get better educated about it and today I have two very special guests. I have Jackie Phillips and Jessica Tubach who are both um, trauma and recovery counselors at a homeless shelter in downtown Tampa Metropolitan Ministries. Thank you guys so much. Hi, thank you. Of course. I'm so excited for you guys to be here. So, um, Jackie, I'll kind of start with you. What is your role really at Metro, being a trauma and recovery counselor? Okay, so as a trauma and recovery counselor, some of the things that I do on a daily basis would be seeing and maintaining an individual client caseload. Um, Currently, I see 10 clients um, who have recovery needs or who have experienced severe trauma. Um, Another thing that I am responsible for is the trauma-informed group called Sanctuary, um, which we can get into a little bit later. Um, And then um, I'm also responsible for a grant that brings um, funding into the counseling department. And that grant is actually um, related to screening clients' trauma upon coming into the program, um, symptomology, both emotional and physical symptomology that comes from trauma. Um, So things like uh, sleeplessness, flashbacks certain things like that are on the questionnaire um so we do the those screenings when they move in and then we give we provide them with interventions while they're here whether that's different groups individual counseling um you know uh even different women's empowerment things that we have or men's groups that we have um and then at the end of the program we give them the assessment again to uh, in hopes that we have a a lower score so far we've done this is the third year of the grant but so far our numbers are rising that through the interventions we prevent we provide um, they are able to have a reduction in scores and they do have a significant difference in trauma symptomology when provide with more services so the more services we give them through counseling the more um, of a reduction they have we're seeing a direct correlation with that so we're actually gaining quality no sorry quantitative data that counseling does reduce the symptoms of trauma wow Uh, yeah what an amazing thing to actually see that on paper because a lot of times i'm sure that you're working with people and you don't really know what's going on okay are Mm -hmm. they getting better they're not telling you you know but then to actually have a visual of that that must be awesome yeah so most of the data that we have in terms of the counseling field in in general is qualitative so it's a lot of like stories or like accounts re-accounts um we don't have a lot of like numbers percentages saying okay we saw 100 which this is our numbers right now, we saw 150 clients, and of that 150 clients, 141 of them had a reduction in symptoms. Of that 141 people, 95% of them had a significant reduction in symptoms. So we can actually like say that, and that 95%, we're tracking, like, did they come to groups? Did they have an individual counselor? How many interventions were they given? And as I said before, the more interventions, the the lower the number is when they're leaving. Wow, that is amazing. Mm-hmm. So trauma, so... I think that a lot of people think that trauma is, okay, I got in a car accident or, Mm -hmm. you know, I 
you know, like a body, I don't know, something like physical, but what, what else could trauma be? So, um, as I said earlier, we, we are trauma informed care site. So what that means is, um, we are always, we look at everything through that lens. So at the end of the day, trauma is anything that happened to you that you didn't have the skills to deal with. So for an example, I like to give sometimes is like, a, there's a child, they may run into a glass door, get up, be fine, walk away another child that may happen to them and they will maybe never go near a glass door again Mm -hmm. because the child a had the the coping skills to deal with running into the glass door child b did not so um that's basically what it is so people you know want to classify trauma as this big thing where it could just be something that you didn't have the skills to deal with um trauma could happen in tiny moments Mm -hmm. it sounds like a case-by-case thing so you could maybe run into that glass door and you could be fine Mm -hmm. in front of a bunch of people but me that could be traumatic for me if I am not you know as comfortable in front of a lot of people making a fool of myself if I think that that's it you could think Mm -hmm. that it's fine that's not making a fool of yourself exactly okay and that's just the easiest way to kind of like break it down that's how we explain it to our clients too because a lot of times you know you're living in a homeless shelter they're thinking well, you know, this thing happened to me, but, like, this worst thing happened to my sister. And we hear that a lot, like... Comparing yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, comparing trauma. Like, my, my... Like, I was molested, but my sister was raped. So, like, they will literally compare their trauma and we're like, but you also did not have the skills to deal with it. So your trauma matters, too. And that's part of our trauma-informed care model as wow. well. Yeah, that is absolutely huge because I think that a lot of people need that, you know, recognition for things and... To realize that their trauma is important too. So I know that you and Jessica work really closely together, um, which is awesome because I see that you guys, your guys' office is right across. So do you guys, um, are you guys kind of helping each other with things throughout the day? Like what, how do your guys' roles kind of interact? Um, yes, we are constantly working together and helping each other. Um, a lot of times we are um, reviewing uh, cases together, consulting on cases, um, processing. Um, we support each other in having the um, trauma and recovery groups, um, how we can um, either both run it or um, having our interns assist in running the groups. Um, we do work together on different um, assigning clients and, and keep being mindful of which interns um, you know need clients and which interns are on the recovery track. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot throughout the day we're supporting each other and helping each other with our current clients and then my role is a little bit different in that I um, work with a lot of the um, intake clients um, as far as the recovery piece on that side goes. Okay so I want to touch on two things that you just said Jessica so Mm -hmm. the intern part and then intake we can all kind of get a little bit into that so Mm -hmm. tell me how like so the interns here are working with residents for counseling services right and so how does how does that kind of work uh so we have um metro has a long-standing internship program in the counseling department um as some of you may know um as a counselor in your counseling master's level program you have to do a year of internship if you're becoming if you're graduating with a clinical mental health counseling degree Mm -hmm. um so we we are a site for those interns to come and to do their internship. Um, in the 
internship program there's a lot of different factors and they there's different tracks so we have the trauma and recovery track which Jessica and I are primarily responsible for and then we have the marriage and family track which um the children's counseling team is primarily responsible for so we take on um between 8 to 14 interns just um and they help us with our intake department getting our so that we can have clients coming into the program and then they are also assigned a caseload and um of individual clients and they are also assigned a group um they can be assigned a processing group a psychoeducation group or an assessment group um depending on their interest and their schedules Um so a uh, part of my role which I didn't mention is that I have been onboarding interns as well so I've been responsible for getting going to the schools making those affiliations and getting interns that are appropriate so we actually do group interviews when we're bringing interns on so we have somebody from every department we try to have somebody from every different every different track or yeah every different area in the counseling department there um in the interview and then we it's very much like the hiring process the intern has to apply online they come in for an interview and then as a team we decide if we're going to take this person on and then they're onboarded through HR and through myself okay so i mean i think that it's a lot of the interns are getting what they need but they're also providing services to the residents here for what yes. they need so it sounds like a really good you know give and take relationship with that um So as far as intake so let's kind of get to the beginning of the road for these people that are trying to come in. So what populations um does Metro serve? Um we serve the homeless and those at in immediate risk of becoming homeless. So for somebody to come into our program, they either need to be literally homeless um which is what we call category 1 homeless which means they're living in a place not meant for habitation so they're living in their car they're living on the street they're mm-hmm. liter- they have nowhere um then we have category 2 which means they've been given an eviction letter they're they're in immediate risk of losing their housing um and these are the federal standards that I'm talking about category 1 and 2 okay um so category 2 is they're in immediate risk so they've they have a home but they've been given an eviction notice um category 3 is that they're couch surfing or they're doubled up they're staying with family but they're not paying a rent or a lease and they don't know how long they can stay there for and then we have category 4 which is dv um so that they they've experienced domestic violence and now they're um trying to they've lost their housing due to a d- domestic violence domestically violent relationship that they've been in. Okay. Um there's so the two severe categories are 1 and 4. So 1 and 4 are our um what we would call our priorities. Mm-hmm. So those are going to be the people at the top of the list. Um those are also the people that we will try and provide motel vouchers for if we have the funding. So we are a non-for-profit organization. So we do heavily depend on donations, grants and funding from the outside. Um and to provide services to our clients which back to the interns is why mm. it's great to have interns because they can help us provide more services without having to actually um pay uh, additional counselors right cuz being a nonprofit you don't have funds to do that i'm sure that mm-hmm. sometimes you guys don't even have the funds for motel vouchers sometimes like bus passes there are certain okay. things we try to provide as much as we can for the clients um our uh thing is that we you know want to make people self sufficient mm-hmm. and provide them dignity so but we don't always have the availability to do that so um 
in terms of intake, so if a client falls in under one of those federal categories of homelessness, they can apply to our program. They come in to the outreach center, which is located on um, Tampa Street, and then they are assessed in outreach to see if they are um, even able to apply for our intake program. We still have people come through to intake who aren't a lot, um, who aren't good candidates. Um, we do have some restrictions in terms of letting people in because we are a shelter for families. So we have to think about the 300 families we have living here. Um, so this three- is more of a family shelter. So mm-hmm. what, so what about singles, stuff like that? If so you don't have a kid, we house, um, families and that could be single parent families. So a single dad, a single mom, two parent families. If the father of the child's name is on the birth certificate or if the parents are married, um, and they have to have children, like for a man to be here, he has to have a child that is biologically or legally tied to him, um, to live here. But so I- you're a single male, no, we don't. Okay. We don't have single males. And that's just because there are more resources for single males in the area. Mm-hmm. The Salvation Army down the street does allow single males and we allow single women as well. So we have, okay. excuse me, we have a limited number of rooms for single women. Um, the majority of people that we're trying to house are families. Okay. So this is a very family based shelter. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So back to what you're saying about restrictions and disqualifiers. So mm-hmm. besides being a single male, what other disqualifiers? Um, so there's a few disqualifiers that we have. We do have a like a unofficial motto here, which is uh, everything is a case by case basis. Um, that goes with being a trauma informed case site. Um, but we do have some like, own like, definite disqualifiers. So if somebody has a diagnosis that has psychosis. Um, if they have a major mental health diagnosis and it's untreated. So if somebody's bipolar and they're not being treated for mm. it um they would have to provide like some kind of evidence from a doctor or a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a counselor saying that they were receiving treatment they don't have to be medicated but they do have to be receiving some kind of services to support and help them in their mental health uh, journey the person has to be able to work or have an income that is going to sustain them um so that might look like uh so we do have a few women here who are uh, you know, past retirement age, uh, 70 years old. Um, so we look at their income and we would, um, see that if their income can sustain them, because obviously at that point they're not able to work, but we still do want to be able to provide them services. Mm -hmm. So if they're getting social security or whatever that looks like, um, also nobody who has been, um, convicted of a mate of a violent crime. Um, and what about some recovery ones, Jessica? Um, so as far as the other, um, things that we look for in intake is, um, their, um, substance abuse history and not just with themselves, but if they have any, um, substance use history, um, in their family with significant others, um, how substances has affected them as a whole. Um, so part of the intake process is we're just trying to, um, understand more if they have experience with using and it can be anywhere from just marijuana to any um, other substances. We ask about alcohol specifically as well. And um, we ask how substances have impacted their um, life. So recovery is a big piece of intake and um, I will get to the recovery piece because we also do um, recovery assessments prior to 
um, clients coming into the program, um, which is case by case, but we also are looking for um, uh, legal substances, essentially, what kind of prescription medications the clients are on. Um, so a lot of times that will fall under the mental health side of things, um, but also the medical side of things. So if a client reports that they are on um, any type of medications, um, even just prenatal vitamins, we ask for some kind of um, list of prescriptions. Um, and usually that's provided through uh, the client through like a their uh, pharmacy. Um, sometimes we can have just the uh, prescription itself that they provide to us, um, documenting the prescription bottle. So when I am sent the list of prescriptions, um, I, from a recovery standpoint, review all of them. Um, we also have our um, health and wellness department um, where the medical um, treatment plans, medications are also reviewed by that side of things. So with the LOP, um, I'll review the medications and kind of just um, looking for specific ones. I usually approve the ones for mental health related things, um, medical things, just knowing that the client should maintain and continue taking their medications as prescribed. Um, but what I'm really looking for are any prescriptions to um, narcotics or other medications that have potential for abuse. And um, we will still work with those clients. It's just that we wanna be aware of these prescriptions, have everything on file, um, once the client does enter the program, they do have to keep their prescriptions in a lockbox and take them as prescribed through our, um, our front desk, our CLA desk. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's just helpful to have these medications on um, my radar. Sometimes clients have had multiple prescriptions to things um, that can seem pretty severe. Um, things like that have potential for um, abuse. Um, would be like um, benzodiazepines, opiates, um, stimulants, uh, which can include um, Adderall, Ritalin. Um, for the, the benzodiazepines, a lot of times that's um, Xanax um, or Ativan or Valium. And then for the opiates, um, usually it can just be um, for usually chronic pain, and that could be anything from like Percocets to um, um, trazodone, tramadol, sorry. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> so well, yeah, lots words. of prescriptions um, <laughs> to review. Um, so, and that's just what I'm looking for and I keep that, that on our radar and obviously mm -hmm. we, if we need to coordinate services and, and, and we need to touch base with the doctor if they're on um, a multitude of prescriptions, that's something that we can do. Um, that's kind of a lot for you to keep track of and look through yes. all of these prescriptions, especially if it's someone coming in and they have an extensive medical history. You're the one that's kind of going through the prescription, seeing if there's anything that they could possibly abuse while in the program. Or So mm -hmm. this kind of ties into what Jackie was saying about disqualifiers. So say that someone mm -hmm. comes in and they're, they're a Category 1 homeless and they are currently using mm -hmm. so what so what happens then what does what happens in intake how do you kind of work with them but they want to get off but they don't know how you know because I right. feel like that could be kind of a barrier so is there anywhere that you would refer them or mm -hmm. any other resources that you guys use absolutely so really when a, a client comes into intake and they report um 
active um, substance use. It really depends on the substance because uh, the most common one that we see is active THC use. And the thing about our program is we're a drug and alcohol free program. So in order to um, move into the program, you have to be able to test negative for all substances. Um, we will sometimes test for alcohol depending on the reported um, alcohol use. If it seems to be high or frequent, then we will include an alcohol test. Um, so we do need a client to be able to test negative for all substances. So with THC, it being the most common one. Um, we start with the intake department with our counseling interns, really having that conversation with them. Um, how do you feel about um, stopping your use? Is that something that you feel like you can do on your own? Um, THC is not one that we, we look at not being able to stop on your own. There's more severe ones where we would refer to um, uh, different locations, which I'll get to. Mm -hmm. Um, but we can provide resources to um, to stop use for like 12-step programs. Um, they have so many different programs between AANA, Celebrate Recovery. Um, but some of th with THC, um, a lot of times Celebrate Recovery is a really good option. Giving the client the, the um, empowering them to say, hey, there's all these, um, you know, meetings that you can attend if you need support in um, no longer using THC. So we try to pro provide resources in that sense. Um, as far as other substances goes, we're looking at how severe it is as far as their, how long they've been using other substances. Um, is it every day? Is it just socially? So we're looking at the whole picture. If they're, if they're frequently using, that would be more, um, active substance use. And then we're, we're, because we're not a, um, inpatient or outpatient treatment facility when it comes to substance use, we do refer those clients out. So we work with um, ACTS and we work with DACO. Um, both of those agencies provide um, outpatient treatment, intensive outpatient treatment, inpatient programs, um, substance abuse evaluations, um, and then I believe just DACO has um, methadone and Suboxone treatment, which is um, used for clients who are wanting to get off opiates. So um, if it's more severe use, we will refer out, and then the, the intention is to have the client get additional support in their recovery and to be able to um, have the environment that they need to um, get off of substances. Um, and then we're asking for them to bring um, a treatment plan showing that they're um, compliant with treatment. And a lot of times those programs are going to do um, ongoing RUAs, random urine analysis. Okay. So we know that they're clean. Mm -hmm. And then some of the more severe ones, if they're uh, chronically using benzos or alcohol, then we would want them to go into a detox program and go to um, uh, DACO for that. Okay. Does DACO and AX have housing? DACO does have a housing okay. program, um, which I believe you have to be uh, diagnosed with some sort of substance use issue. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so they do, we do have clients that... Um, are referred there and then end up in their housing program. Okay, so it sounds like really, since this is a family shelter, you guys are really taking all the precautions to make sure that everybody here is safe because you obviously wouldn't want someone that is currently using to be in this facility around other people because even maybe, I'm sure that you have recovering clients that are here, so that wouldn't really work out for them if, they, if there's someone that's currently using that could be a trigger for possibly them. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So we have a lot of clients that we work with that are in recovery. Um, and so it is a trigger for them 
use and it being around. So that's why we, we are maintain a drug and alcohol free program. Mm-hmm. Um, we have clients that continue to attend 12 step meetings. Um, we have groups that we provide as far as uh, we have a self support group that is uh, focused on clients that have been through um, trauma, but also it, the focus is recovery and we're teaching them coping skills and helping them to identify triggers. Cause a lot of times clients are still in the recovery process trying to understand their own recovery and and what triggers them. So to provide them a safe environment, especially because we house families, Mm -hmm. um, that's what we're really, um, that's what our goal is and our intention. So sometimes with the more severe use, we want to just understand how we can best support the client and sometimes a a more intensive program is what they need. Mm So I know that Jackie was talking about how she could really see progress with doing the grants and the paperwork like that. Do you have any stories like that with self-support? Like, do you have any clients where, you know, in the beginning they're a little bit resistant, but then at the end they're coming up to you saying, wow, you know, like I never knew this. Like, do you see like a change within clients through these groups? I really do. Um, it's it's great because sometimes the clients come and they're, they're resistant to change and, um, Maybe they're new to their recovery or maybe they feel like um, they don't need certain things. So sometimes you have to get the, the buy-in and a lot of times... I like that, the buy-in. Yeah, right? Because a lot of people are probably, you know, they, they don't want to change their ways. And here you are kind of telling them mm-hmm. this is this is their kind of more safe way to do it. And then another part of it too is that culturally a lot of them don't feel like their use is an issue. So like that's a big thing that we come up to as well just in terms of like the intake portion of it is Mm -hmm. that we ask these questions in intake, you know, um, about drugs and alcohol. It's part of, so as they come in um, to apply for our program, for the housing program, hey, and they have to do a kind of biopsychosocial of mm-hmm. sorts, which is an, a type of assessment that we do. It's our own version of it that we created for the intake process. And in there, we ask these questions about substances. You know, when was the last time you had a drink? How often do you drink? Um, have you ever felt guilty about your drinking? And as well with substances, a lot of the times we kind of had the same things. Mm-hmm. And we also have to specify a lot of the times too because we would be like, oh, well, have you ever used drugs? And the client's like, no. And then you're like, well, have you ever smoked weed? And they're like, oh, yeah, all the mm-hmm. time. So it's like they don't even... Make that connection. Yeah, that it is that it is a substance. And um, so we, a lot of the times, are having these clients who've been smoking marijuana for, you know, a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, they're parents smoked marijuana their all their friends did too so they're like no I don't have a problem I'm just social right um and the same thing we have with drinking drinking is technically a legal substance and Mm -hmm. this is the one that we run into with issues a lot in the actual program with people who are living here yeah um so we do do random drug and alcohol tests in the program and a lot of the times when we do get a positive test, it's usually an alcohol test because, as I said, it's a legal substance. All the person has to do is go to a store and they can buy a bear or they can buy liquor. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, it's, you know, those are the some of the obstacles that we run into because we have to – that person may not have a problem, but also you're living in a homeless shelter, so what are your priorities? Right. Um, and I've definitely had to have those conversations with people before where they had a positive alcohol test and – um, you know, and I was trying to talk to them about it and they, cause we give people chances. Mm-hmm. We have like being trauma informed care, mm-hmm. you know, it's not what's wrong with somebody. It's what happened to them. Something mm-hmm. is going on with them. They're feeling triggered. They feel like they need to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know sitting down with that person and just they just kept denying 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 and I let them know I'm like you're gonna choose to lie like have that beer over a house or yeah a like place you're to you're choosing to be dishonest uh-huh. about a drink that I know you had over being having a place to stay and those are some of the hard decisions that I've had to make of you know transitioning somebody from the program because we can't have people using it sets precedent there's a lot it is a community and people talk (laughs) so they'll be like oh well I know so and so has been drinking and they're still here and then it's a domino effect okay yeah. So staying with the drug and alcohol test, what would call for a drug and alcohol test? Um, so we do one when the person is come. We do sometimes we do preliminary drug tests if the person if we're a little iffy about if before they come into the program mm-hmm. we might do a pre- preliminary if we think possibly they're not going to be able to pass. Um, so that could kind of be something if Jessica was kind of getting a red flag about something that happened in intake mm-hmm. and she was saying, okay, you know, like that's okay. This, you know, this person doesn't really have extensive drug use, but they did say that they had a glass of wine yesterday, but it could just be a casual drink. Maybe we'll throw a preliminary drug test, like something like that. Um, yeah. So as far as preliminary drug, drug tests go, um, if we need to see if a client would be able to test negative. So sometimes we'll do a preliminary drug test for like THC because that one will stay up in, um, depending on how frequent the use is, um, chronic use THC could stay into this in the system up to 30 days and sometimes more. So if a client reports that they, they quit smoking and it's been about 30 days and they reported previous chronic use, sometimes we will do a preliminary drug test just to see if they, they can be cleared from recovery. Um, you know, if a client is denying use, but then certain things don't add up or, or they don't appear to be forthcoming, um, sometimes we'll do a preliminary um, drug test as far as um, just seeing if they are able to pass. And then moving forward, they'll do another drug test upon move in. Okay. Um, so as far as the preliminary goes, sometimes a person will test positive and that brings me back to the uh, recovery assessments. Mm-hmm. So just to touch on those, um, recovery assessments go, um, they're, they're case by case. Um, and sometimes we will recommend a recovery assessment if a client reports no use or that they haven't been using and they test positive for something at move in or for a preliminary, then we'll recommend a recovery assessment, um, which I'll get into. But the other times where that we recommend the recovery assessment is um, clients that report more of a history, more of a significant history. If it's usually just THC use, um, we won't recommend a, a recovery assessment. And then sometimes um, with clients that just report like social um, use, you know, when they were young and it been years, we don't really recommend um, a recovery assessment. The times that we do is clients that have more significant, they've they've experimented with a lot of substances and it might be more recent than like years and years ago. Um, and the, the purpose of the recovery assessment, just to get into that, is it helps us to, um, get more information on the client in their own recovery. So we first kind of start off with finding out all of the substances that they've used, even if it's just experimental. We find out the age that they that they tried it, um, how long they were using, um, duration, was it daily, um, was it just experimental? And then um, 
we go into understanding like is there any other family history of substance use um we ask how substances have affected their lives in a little bit more depth and detail um, sometimes it can be drug related charges or it can be a dui and and those kinds of charges is getting in the way of their um other types of functioning you know getting a job and and things like that um, and then we kind of go into what are you doing for your own recovery? What kind of so sober support systems do you have set in place? Um, do you know about meetings? Um, have you ever attended? Have you ever did any inpatient uh, programs? Things like that. Because our goal um, from the recovery assessments is to understand how can we best support this client? Where are they at in their recovery? Um, and then will they be considered a recovery client? Usually when they have an RA completed, they are, and that's when they're invited to the self-support group. Okay. Um, and just to take it full circle, that is where clients get the most support in their recovery. And we have had clients that have a, more of a significant history. They've been to inpatient programs. Um, they've worked with a recovery counselor in the past. And them having a safe place to to go um here it's 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 so nice because they're able to open up they're able to reflect on their past they're able to um, have a safe place to kind of process um, their recovery or if it ran in their family and we try to make it fun for them when they're in um, our in our groups we try to incorporate our art therapy um, to really process trauma or to um, open up about things that they probably didn't weren't able to make connections to in the past. Mm -hmm. um, we use a lot of psychoeducation and um, I've been using um, curriculums from Seeking Safety, which is a great way to help clients identify um, their, their triggers and then what kind of coping skills that they can implement to kind of combat those triggers. Um, so we try to make it fun for them, but also get the most out of it. Right, and it seems like you kind of have to use that fun to get that safe space to get them to open up because I'm sure that you've seen that a lot of people haven't even talked about their recovery or, or haven't mm -hmm. thought it was a problem or have never reflected on it before so mm -hmm. now here they are in a group with people that may be strangers with you that may be a stranger mm -hmm. and now they're being told let's open up and talk about this so I think that's really important that you you know give them that safe space and make them feel comfortable and build that rapport with them so that they can open up and really get that insight to themselves mm -hmm. absolutely and it's great too because the clients are really supportive of each other sometimes those relationships and bonds can be more powerful than the one with the therapist because they have been through they can kind of make the connections of like oh i've been there i've experienced that too um and then they are feeling more open and comfortable mm -hmm. to share their stories because maybe somebody you know shared theirs first so in a group dynamic it's just a really powerful place to be able to, for the clients to make those connections with each other and then the therapist is is definitely wanting to build that rapport and those relationships but sometimes they can just be the guide in in, in connecting these clients together so sometimes you find yourself just sitting back and watching the magic mm -hmm. happen. So that sounds like some kind of success stories that you've had within that group. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's definitely, there's a lot of benefits to having clients engage in, yeah. in group therapy like yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So that kind of goes into recovery, the preliminary, like all of those steps from intake. And then um, once they're in here, like kind of back to you, Jackie, of what you were saying, like what would cause a client to get tested while in the program? Yeah. So for that, we have a couple different things that can happen. So um, although they, a lot of clients don't 
go off-site too often um, for, like, overnights and stuff like that. They sometimes do because they still sometimes have people in the community that they can go and visit, like maybe their mom or something, um, and they'll go and visit for, like, a weekend. So if somebody leaves overnight, unless it's to the hospital and they have discharge paperwork, we do a drug and alcohol test when they come back. If somebody comes in after the curfew, whether they were allowed to or not, because we have two different things. We have overnights and curfew extensions. So people Mm -hmm. can get a curfew extension. But if they come back after their curfew, again, and it's not because of a medical reason. So what time is curfew? Um, On the weekends, it's midnight for adults um, and 10 p.m. for kids. And then during the week, it's 11 for the adults and 9 p.m. for the kids. Okay, so they come in 11.30 during the weekend. It's, we need to test you because you're No, late. not 11.30. They would have, because it's midnight. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. So if they came in after midnight, okay. they would get tested um, for drugs and alcohol. Um, it's supposed to happen right then and there. Um, sometimes it doesn't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because we have to depend on our... Um, staff that are work the front desk, our residential staff, uh-huh. um, and you know they sometimes are short staffed or whatever happens. So a lot of times with that, they they're supposed to get drug tests right there and then. But if for a staffing reason they don't, it's we you know sometimes we'll be okay with that. But if the client walks away um, from the counter or you know denies, that's an automatic positive drug test. Just because they're just refusing the test. Yeah. Um, And in those cases, it's not an automatic transition from the program. It's usually now I have to go um, and intervene and talk to the client with their case manager present, sometimes with a supervisor present just to, um, sometimes I do it one-on-one first. Like I just kind of meet with the client to to let them know like, hey, I understand that you had a positive test. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not here to blame you. I'm not trying to like catch you doing anything, but this is the fact and you're not supposed to be doing this. Just like... Kind of um, with empathy and, mm-hmm. and um, a compassion. Um, and a lot of times I'm, it's, the client receives that pretty well, you know, normalizing to them. Like, listen, I understand alcohol is legal. Like, it's easy to go have a drink. It's, it was probably something that you did on the weekends when you weren't living here. But unfortunately, when you live here, you can't do that. And a lot of times client will be like, yeah, I'm sorry. And yeah, I did have a drink. And they'll kind of like mm-hmm. open up. That's not always the case. Sometimes clients want to um, come up with beautiful excuses. We've mm-hmm. heard some <laughs> lovely stories over the years, which, I mean, you have to laugh yeah, about it now. Of course. In the moment, I was not as <laughs> happy um, about it. <laughs> but now I'm like, you know, a client would be like, oh, I drank a whole bottle of NyQuil. And I would be like, well, maybe that wouldn't have... Well, first of all, that that's not healthy right, either. Right. So you're also not taking medication as prescribed, but that wouldn't not cause this or they'll they'll say oh i did this thing so it must be this or i took my kids allergy medicine no that's not going to make you have a positive alcohol test or i um ate a poppy seed bagel or like they'll say oh certain, yeah those are beautiful stories you yeah got. yeah Dang. so they'll say certain things like that and um they really think that we're naive and it's kind of funny because it's like you know that on my like you know i have a master's degree right. i went to school for this <laughs> but um i have to say sometimes they are very convincing stories so i don't know if somebody's like if somebody sits down in front of me and says oh yeah i just had the one drink the one time i don't know if they, they're drinking every weekend you know mm-hmm. and sometimes i've even like given them like a like an excuse on a silver platter and they still tell me some oh i took my kids allergy medicine so um 
that is part of the recovery counseling um, portion that we're really responsible for is overseeing those drug and alcohol tests, making sure that we're having those come to Jesus conversations mm-hmm. with clients um, when they are testing positive. So yeah, as I said, overnights and curfew extensions, or if they're coming in late um, without an excuse, um, like which would be a medical excuse, anything like if, oh, I had a flat tie, I know you're still going to get drug and alcohol tested. Mm-hmm. Um And then also we can randomly test any person who is a recovery client at any time without Mm -hmm. any warning. That's part of the paperwork they sign when they move in. And we can also test if we have any suspicion whatsoever. So um, in the past, there was a client and she, you know, was stumbling and slurring her words. And um, the CLE had a suspicion that she had been drinking. So we... The CLE is the residential staff team. Okay. The uh, acronym that we use for them, it's called Community Life Advisor. Um, so the residential staff had seen her and witnessed her being drunk. Um, so we ordered an alcohol test for that client. Um, and it came back positive And, you know, we had to talk with her about it. A lot of the times we're not trying to catch people, though. Like, we're in, like of course, we're a drug and alcohol-free facility and we don't want people to be drinking or doing drugs. But also... Um, we're not tra- we're not a prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not a, a reform center. We're not a treatment facility. So um, for the most part, we won't do it unless there's a suspicion, like mm-hmm. somebody smelling marijuana on this person, or mm-hmm. um, or as I said, you know, the overnight curfew extension stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, because it really does seem like you guys this program is really trying to help people become mm-hmm. more self sufficient, and you know that could have been something that they relied on was alcohol. So how can you really? be your most self-sufficient self if you're kind of going back to that. So I think that's where that comes in. But, mm-hmm. I mean, all that you guys are saying, it really is to support the clients, you know, with e- like with even the onboarding process to make sure that when they come into this program that they kind of know what they're getting into. They're kind of set. So I think that, mm-hmm. I mean, we're very, we're 40 minutes in and we have just touched on what it takes to get into the program. So mm-hmm. it does seem like a lot. Um, so I do know that this is a waitlisted program. So what are you guys seeing as lengths for kind of waitlist between the time for people that are coming into intake, doing the assessment, the biopsychosocial, getting cleared from recovery, you know, po- possibly taking the preliminary drug test, um, going through all of that. How long do you see people waiting to get in and get a room? So we, I will tell you what we tell the clients, which is... Um, there's really no set time. It really depends on the client's motivation and what's going on in that person's life. Um, so in intake, they come in, they do the assessment and based on the assessment, we figure out what they need to bring back to us. Cause we, we need, we require certain documents. We can't just have somebody come in here and living and we don't have birth certificates. We don't have social. So there's some documents. There's a lot of documents that we require dependent on what the client has going on in their life. So let's let's take an ordinary client, no me- medical issues, no health issues, no recovery issues. Um, they just are, let's say, a single mom with a kid, one kid. She comes in, she has all of her documentation, which in this case would be, since she has no medical history, no mental health history, it would be like her ID card, these birth certificate for her child, socials for herself and her child, um, and then the forms that we had her fill out. Um, there might be like a couple things here and there that we might need from her, but that's basically it. Um, even at that point, we couldn't give her a time 
because it's really dependent on when a room becomes available because we do have so that's an example of a single mom with one child Mm -hmm. so she would just need a room with maybe one bed maybe two beds depending if the child's sleeping in a bed yet so that's our program and our housing we have rooms we have rooms that are to accommodate parents up to uh, family size up to seven people so we might have a room for seven people that becomes open today and she's not gonna go into that room even though she came and she had everything um so some I've seen somebody move in the same exact day they came into intake and I've seen people be on a wait list for three months six months depending on their motivation the people who are not motivated to bring back what they need to bring back they could be on the wait. They could not be on the wait list, but they could be in the process of being an intake for, for years if they don't mm-hmm. follow up. Um, but once they're on the wait list, we don't really know either. Based unless they have like um, they know like oh this person, this person Susie is moving out tomorrow. She's a single mom with one kid. Nancy's up next she's a single mom with one kid so maybe in that's the only way they would really know if they know that a certain person is 100% going to move out and this space is going to become available um but I would say in terms of the wait list I don't think people stay on the wait list longer once they get to that point because that means they've had brought everything in they've provided everything they needed they've followed up with everything they were supposed to um I don't think people stay on the wait list longer than three months. Okay. So, and oh, just to add to that really quick too, there are trends throughout the year because um, during tax season, um, clients have the, the income and resources to, to figure out their housing situation. And so we have a very much shorter wait list. So time of year can kind of depend on the wait list during that time, especially we don't really, generally we can move people in a lot quicker. Um, so that, that is a trend. And then sometimes with other agencies, um, like at the beginning of their fiscal year when they have um, uh, their resources, their their um, finances, they're a little bit more on the heavier end of things. So they have more to be able to provide. There's going to be a lot more housing options, a lot more resources for housing. So time of year definitely will impact the, the length of a wait list and how long um, the clients um, tend to be on the wait list. Okay, so it seems like they go through the intake process, they bring their documents back, they kind of get cleared from intake, they kind of get cleared from recovery, and then they're added to the wait list, and then it kind of just maybe takes between one and three months depending on priority and depending on availability for these clients to be able to move in. Yeah. And like you said, in the meantime, you're kind of referring to other agencies in the community. Yeah, so I do have to admit, unfortunately, it is really difficult this is like one of the hottest things working with the homeless population is that you know especially if they have mental health or anything like that going on there are some agencies out there that do provide services but for the most part we are kind of the place we are the beacon for homeless families so it's so funny because we will we sometimes have to refer somebody somewhere else like we don't take people who are actively fleeing domestic violence. We need them to be safe before they can come here. So we will refer somebody to this to the spring, which is a domestic violence shelter, and then a couple of weeks later they still show back up in our because the spring referred them back to us. So it's it's kind of like, like a ping pong effect. Yeah, it definitely is just because of like funding and um, you know, just resources in general. Like that's something that as mental health professionals, as people, anybody out there, we need to be advocating for more in general because yes we do 
have a few places that we can refer people we do have as i said earlier the motel vouchers but the people that really that i think about that maybe keep me up at night are the people who we can't help Mm -hmm. so the person who is a schizophrenic the person who has been chronically homeless because they have these like this charge from when they were a younger kid um there was a client that i saw an intake once he he had murdered somebody when he was a kid and a part of a gang so he couldn't come into our program he was reformed he was in his 40s and he had kids and he all of that but he couldn't come into our program because he had a murder charge mm-hmm. so it's like there are certain things that um we don't have great resources for um if the person's a veteran that does open up a lot more for them um but in terms of outside resources you know the ones that we named already we have jacko there's um oh what's that one in brandon there's one in brandon is it St. Vincent de Paul? Is that one? Oh, well, St. Vincent de Paul is like a, <laughs> is a charity. There's okay. Catholic charities. So our outreach, um, but most, as I said, for the most part, we are it. And there's Salvation Army of Lakeland. They're the only um, Salvation Army in the area that takes families. Because we have their Salvation Army down the street. There's also something called... Um, what's the one up the road? Um, Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, yeah. They... Um, they will allow somebody to stay there for free for one night and then they will do like a reduced rate as well. So there's like little things here and there, but you kind of have to know about it. And we do have a um, resource packet that I can provide to you as well. Okay. Um, it's like a brochure that kind of like breaks it down into the different areas because sometimes um, somebody might be able to even just stay with their mom a little longer knowing. So sometimes I've even written letters to clients um, because they came in and they're like, oh, I'm staying with a friend. And she says, I can't stay there anymore. But I'm like, well, if you, I'll write a letter saying that you applied here today and that it's going to take a little bit. Um, and maybe that can help. So like even doing certain things like that for clients who, you know, are doubled up um, so that we can keep them out of their car or, you know, off the streets. Right, right. Um, yeah, this is, there is just a lot that goes into this process and I just want to thank you guys so much for explaining this to the community and I think that this is a great way to end Jackie is by you saying that unfortunately there aren't a lot of resources in the community for people to go to. I mean, what if all of these resources that you said they're booked and then, you know, so I think that that's really good for the listeners to know is that we really do need to advocate for these people, really do need to advocate for this population, for mental health, for, I mean, just even giving people another chance. I mean, everybody's been through something. It's what happened to them, right? Mm -hmm. Trauma-informed care. So um, thank you guys so much for putting light on this. Um, And I hope that all of the listeners really can take something out of this. Um, And we have only touched on maybe 25% of what you guys do. So (laughs) I seriously applaud you guys. um, And hopefully we can do a couple more episodes in the future and we can kind of um, get more in depth on everything else that you guys do because I know that there is so much more. Um, so thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Of course, ladies. Okay. Um, and we will see you next episode on here for it. Thank you.